Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 35. I'm Jim Cornell from the Biotech and this is the last podcast in February. It's my son's birthday today, it's also Estonia's national day and it's exactly one year ago today that Ukraine was invaded by Russia. As next Tuesday is Rare Disease Day, we have three guests on the podcast today, all relevant to rare diseases. And they are Dan Mandel, CEO and co-founder of Grow Biosciences, Stefano Portolano, Chief Executive Officer at Azafaros, and from Replay, Adrian Wolfson, Executive Chairman, President and Co-Founder, and Lachlan McKinnon, CEO and Co-Founder. And so now it's time for some of the news you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. Biocytogen launched a nanobody therapeutics project for 100 targets. The first patient has been enrolled in farming's APSD trial. And we had an article on a new pharma event coming up in May in Sweden. And it's called the Lund Spring Symposium. And it looks like a really impressive one. We had a story on whether CRISPR can correct a type 2 diabetes gene. HKU Med developed a nanoparticle-based targeted drug delivery system. And Hemab Therapeutics received $135 million to address bleeding and thrombotic disorders. Korean researchers developed an antimicrobial peptides discovery tool. Moderna and LifeEdit Therapeutics are hoping to speed up gene editing therapies and an Italian life sciences fund has reached 175 million euros. Sherlock received a Cas12 CRISPR patent. There's a new promising targeted drug for a rare leukemia. And as I mentioned, it's Estonia's national day today. And we had a look at 11 of the top biotech companies in Estonia. Sanofi's haemophilia drug has received FDA approval. Researchers have discovered how tumor cells become resistant to colorectal cancer chemotherapy. And Elix announced an important step towards HIV eradication. And you can read all of these and a whole lot more at labiotech.eu. And so that brings us to this week's first guest, but let's first set the scene. Taking place on February the 28th each year, Rare Disease Day raises awareness and looks to generate change for the 300 million people worldwide living with a rare disease, as well as supporting their families and carers. This year, the day will be marked by more than 600 events in 106 countries, so definitely well worth checking out the Rare Disease Day website at raredisease.day.org. Replay is a genome writing company reprogramming biology by writing and delivering big DNA. It's combined with the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center to launch a new company, Cyena, which focuses on oncology through T-cell receptor natural killer cell therapies. To tell us about the new company and what it will be doing are Adrian Wolfson, Executive Chairman, President and Co-Founder, and Lachlan McKinnon, CEO and Co-Founder, who you will hear from first. Yeah, we set up Replay in March 2021, and our, our vision was to compile a set of technology platforms, and um, our ambition was to be a multi-platform company rather than just having a single technology like editing we wanted to have delivery and cell therapy and the content that we're going to put into cells all in one company and we feel like over time being multi-platform will give us a more nuanced approach around a given therapeutic than being single platform and we raised 55 million dollars led by kkr and a number of other investors at the beginning of 2022 and we've pulled in kind of six foundational platform technologies into replay we've got a delivery platform that can deliver up to 150 kilobases so go 30 times beyond the payload of aav or 15 times more payload than lenti we think that's incredibly compelling in vivo but also ex vivo in terms of reprogramming cell therapies we're building a hyperimmunogenic technology for using ips cells and cell therapy and we've got a genome assembly platform for writing big constructs and um, those platforms are all developed in a disease error agnostic way within Replay. And then when we see a specific product opportunity, we create a product company that it's therapeutic area defined. 
And that's how we run our pipeline. So we use the new capital structure to bring in thought leaders, bring in people who understand that particular area. And it allows us to credibly apply these big platforms in multiple adjacent spaces. And what we're seeing yesterday with the launch of Saina is our latest product company where we're, we're partnering with, with MD Anderson. We're bringing in an NK platform that's clinical stage, but we're also enabling the next generation with some of our platforms. Yeah, and Jim, our mission is to literally to reprogram biology through writing and delivering big DNA. And so this we've assembled this kind of toolkit or this suite of integrated technology platforms, which uh, Lachlan's alluded to, you know, the HSV for delivery, the hypermogenic platform for immune, silent, immune silent cells, the genome writing platform, and also another two platforms now, the TCRNK platform, which we've just brought in, and also an evolutionary inference machine learning platform that enables us to completely redesign proteins. And in addition to these technology platforms, we've brought in a world-class team of entrepreneurs, academics, and seasoned um, industry executives. And we've configured the corporate structure at Replay in a way that enables us to separate technology development from product development. So Replay is really a kind of robust vehicle to enable us to realize this integrated vision for genomic medicine. And we're, we're aiming to build an, you know, an enduring company that can define and own the future of um, genomic medicine. And Lachlan and I, you know, more or less independently um, converged upon this vision and built Replay around um, that vision. I think this isn't the first company spin-off that we've covered at the biotech. You've had several others. Is that a unique model that you've developed? I think we're the first company to separate platform technology development from product development and to do it in an expansive way in the field of genomic medicine. One of the main advantages of this model that we we have built, and it's also different because we're we're actually accumulating technology platforms, whereas other companies like BridgeBio, for example, had a sort of similar model, but they were bringing in assets on an almost piecemeal basis. But we we have a kind of toolkit of technology platforms which have an almost infinite capacity to be combined with our other platform technologies in new and interesting ways to generate product companies. But the incentivization structure of the kind of model we've built is particularly unique because what we're able to do is offer our co-founders very substantive ownership in the new co. So they're, they're real founders with a really decent amount of equity. They are able to inherit um, a completely formed and mature and seasoned management team. We're able to put sub-licenses to the different technology platforms within the specific field of the product company into the product company. So to give it more tools to play with and to leverage the core technology. And we're also able to guarantee the source of funding. So for all of the above, this structure is actually very attractive to potential entrepreneurs or people looking to find a good home for their own technology. And that's how we managed to get the TCRNK deal, which was actually very competitive. In terms of the current spin-out, how did you develop the relationship to form that new one? We decided last year that we wanted to look for a clinical stage asset. And given that our technology platforms are quite you know, unique, really, all centered around genome writing and synthetic biology, it wasn't obvious what that would be. But we decided in the end it would have to be a cell therapy. And then we decided within cell therapy, you know, T-cell therapy was very crowded. Macrophage therapy was too immature. But NK-cell therapy was kind of just on the ascendant. And uh, there was this tremendously interesting data that Katie Rivzani had published in the New England Journal in February of 2020, where she um, took these allergenic car NK cells and treated um, highly recalcitrant CD19-positive lymphoma tumors, a whole range of them. And these were heavily pretreated patients who'd failed a median of about four therapies, but some of them had failed up to 13 therapies. And these included CLL, non-Hodgkinson's lymphoma, large cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma. And she got a response rate of 73% and a 64% complete response rate. But notably, 
didn't see any of the high-grade neurotoxicity or cytokine release syndrome seen with T-cell therapy, both TCRs and CAR-Ts. So we thought this was tremendous data and um, had the advantage, of course, as well, that NKs are allergenic intrinsically and very scalable. It turns out you can get at least 100 doses from a single core blood donor. So we didn't know that Katie had a TCRNK platform. We thought we might be able to get one of her car NKs because she'd done the deal with Takeda for four indications based, you know, one of them was the lymphoma indication. But then they told us about this TCRNK platform and it's obviously a first in class asset. And we thought, wow, this is just tremendous. It would enable us to become the leaders in cell therapy and to take the pole position in the evolution of cell therapy. So it was a no brainer that we would want to bring it in, particularly because uh, it was due to be in the clinic in Q2 of this year. So it's a clinical stage asset. And Katie was, is the undisputed leader in the field of engineered NK cell therapy. So um, we immediately expressed our interest, were rebuffed because they said they had uh, big, you know, term sheets from Big Pharma and from some VC funds. And, you know, they said, thanks, but no thanks, you know. But after talking to them some more, and this was, I credit our persistence here, they actually really understood the value of our structure and what we could offer. And that was quite different to what anybody else could offer. And and that's why we feel this kind of validates our business model and demonstrates how we're able to attract deals into replay that perhaps other people wouldn't necessarily be able to attract. But it's, of course, rocket fuel for replay because we're now a clinical stage company. Could you tell me about the actual TCR NK cell platform and how it works and where it goes from here? You know, we're really excited by the comparison with TCRTs. And there's probably 20 or, or 25 current, you know, funded TCRT companies of varying sizes. And there's close to an approval from Adaptimune who really pioneered the space. And we think TCRNKs compare to TCRTs very favorably. And there are a number of dimensions where we think we can differentiate. The first of which is cost of goods and scalability. Because NK cells don't naturally express TCRs, they're kind of inherently allergenic. So you can use donors as the cell source. And in our case, we're using cord blood. And that leads to immense scalability and also cost of goods benefits over using patient-derived T-cells. So I think were we to just differentiate on that platform, I think we've got a, a viable way forward. But then secondly, NK cells have been shown in the car NK space to be incredibly safe versus CAR Ts. And you don't get any high-grade neurotox or CRS. And we we expect TCR in case to inherit that benign safety profile as we're using exactly the same manufacturing process as, as the CAR NK study that already exists. And then the third point is efficacy. And NK cells are inherently significantly better at killing tumor cells. The target to effector ratios are generally better. That's the case with our products. But on top of that, the uh, inherent resistance mechanism, which is loss of the tumor target antigen. In the case of a TCRT, this often leads to resistance and relapse. In the case of an NK, loss of the target antigen triggers another kill mechanism as NK, uh, NK cells specifically kill tumors that downregulate MHC. So we think if we can establish that principle, there's a huge efficacy component to be had here. Yeah. And another, another significant advantage of NK cells is that they take up the transgene much more efficiently than T cells, probably about twice as efficiently. So for any given number of cells, you have twice as many NK cells that have the transgene as there would be TCRTs if you if you were transducing T cells. So that's another significant advantage. But the scalability is, is a huge advantage. And we think we can get at least 100 doses, um, if not more. And Casey has also recently, since the time of the New England Journal paper, developed a method to identify what she refers to as supercords. And supercords are cord blood donors whose cells invariably result in very safe and efficacious NK cell therapeutics. You know, so there's something about those cells from supercord patients that are particularly good at killing tumors. And she's actually identified the molecular basis of this at a single cell level, not published yet, though, so we can't disclose the details. But it provides actually a unique way of identifying 
the best donor cells, which obviously you can't do with an IPS-derived product or at the moment a peripheral blood-derived product. So that gives us another substantive advantage. So for all of the above reasons, we, we really do think that TCRNKs are very differentiated from all other cell therapies. The nice thing as well is that, as Lachlan mentioned, we're using the exact same manufacturing process for the TCRNKs that Katie used and published for the New England Journal paper with car NKs. All we do is instead of putting in a car, we put in a TCR. But in, in the case of cell therapy, the manufacturing process is the drug. And all we're doing is redirecting that drug using a different receptor, a TCR instead of a car. So we know the drug works because it's already been tried and tested in lymphoma, right? So we're just using the same drug, but redirecting it using a TCR. And the other thing is the TCR that we're using is an affinity-enhanced TCR, which has already been tested in TCR T-cells. So we know it works. And the target we're going after, NYESO1, is the most highly validated tumor neoantigen target. So we're essentially conjuncting a de-risked manufacturing process with a de-risked and tried and tested TCR sequence, which has been affinity-engineered against a highly validated target. So for all of the above reasons, we're confident that the probability of technical and regulatory success for our program is, is immensely high, which is obviously very attractive to us. What about the cost implications in terms of whether it's cheaper to do things this way and I guess the ultimate cost in the US to the healthcare system? Yeah, well, we anticipate that the costs will be substantially lower because obviously with an autologous cell therapy, you'll have to take the patient's own cells and the manufacturing process takes four to five weeks and often fails. You've also got point of care manufacturing, which is just beginning to emerge. But the scalability of what we're doing, we believe is very differentiated from all other approaches. So we anticipate the cost of goods being much lower. This is, in a sense, the first step towards the democratization of cell therapy and making it more broadly available and accessible across the world. Whereas at the moment, it's really um, restricted to uh, nations who have obviously um, substantive resources within their healthcare systems. But this is the beginning of truly democratized cell therapy. And we can probably get considerably more than 100 doses because actually in Katie's New England Journal paper, she tested three doses, one times 10 to the 5, 6 and 7. And she saw good responses at all the doses. And that's probably because these core blood derived cells expand very, very efficiently once you put them in. So you don't need to put too many cells in. And is it a treatment that needs to be repeated periodically or is it just a one time? Well, the cells persist for at least a year. And Katie's been seeing durable responses with a single administration. But there's always the possibility of re-administering the drug if patients relapse. What does this mean for the end patient? Yeah, well, I think I think what it means for the patient is a much safer treatment, you know, without the, the concern of, you know, grade three, four um, cytokine release syndrome, which can be life-threatening, and grade three, four neurotoxicity. And these are, you know, occur at relatively high frequency with T-cell, TCR T-cells or CAR T-cells, right? So a safe treatment, and we believe a highly efficacious treatment, which we believe will be more durable than some of the other cell therapies modalities that can be off the shelf. So it's immediately available. You don't have to wait for four or five weeks for manufacturing and a lot cheaper. And then beyond the first generation of products, we obviously at Replay have the ability to engineer these cells far more substantially than other people are currently doing because we've got the platform technologies to do that. So as time goes on, we plan, especially for the more difficult to treat tumors with immune deserts and so on that exclude immune cells, we plan to load these cells up with more content. And that's probably two, three, four years away. And when do you anticipate being able to start on things like clinical trials? Our first study um, against the uh, NYESO1 target will commence in Q2 this year. And um, we should have subsequent updates about other clinical stage products coming out fairly soon. 
And what we've done, Jim, is we, you know, NYISA one's our first target, but we've actually already secured affinity engineered T cell receptors for other very clinically relevant cancer targets. So we're primed and ready to go on our second and third programs. One of those might be ready to commence by the end of this year. So we might start our second program in Q4 or possibly Q1 of next year. And where will that take place? There will be single site studies, MD Anderson, and there will be basket studies looking at both hematological malignancies and solid tumors because these neoantigens are found in very broad ranges of tumor types. And that's another huge advantage of these drugs is that they're not indication specific. You know, you can use one of these TCRNKs across multiple different tumor types. And I think the, there's lots of innovation to explore with the FDA about the way in which these drugs get approved. You know, I can easily imagine a label which uh, is tumor agnostic, actually, you know, which is basically just any tumor type, which is NYISO1 positive, for example. There may or may not be a, a threshold of expression that's defined, you know, but it's quite easy to imagine a label like that. And obviously you can't predict everything, but... What kind of timelines are you looking at for this to be something that's being widely used? Well, you know, it depends on the indication that we shoot for for the registration. But if we go for a relatively rare, you know, kind of ultra-orphan disease, the size of the clinical study for an approval could be quite small to get the, you know, the initial approval. And then there'll be obviously a commitment to do some kind of follow-on study. But it could be, you know, within two, three years. I imagine, you know, if we can find an indication like that. Obviously, if we go for an approval in one of the bigger indications, we'll we'll probably have to do an investigator choice type of study where you you look at the drug versus standard of care or or do um, a randomized study. And that would obviously take longer. You know, that's probably more like a four-year, five-year time frame. But I think that we'll probably be able to identify a kind of fast track accelerated approval strategy. Having set up the company only two years ago, I think it's great that we're two years in and we're in the clinic. Now, our goal is to take products all the way whilst remaining at the cutting edge of platform development. And I think that's quite a unique position we'll find ourselves in um, if we can drive something like a TCRNK to approval whilst continuing to drive the next generation behind it. So we're very excited and uh, great to chat today. We do believe that the platform technologies that we've developed within Replay will be a really synergistic kind of partner, if you like, for Katie's technology, and that we'll be able to take it to the next level. We think the technology as it is will be very efficacious, but we believe that we'll be able to use our technologies to deepen the responses, make them longer, and broaden the tumor types that will benefit from this therapy. So it's a tremendously exciting moment in Replay's history. And, you know, Katie Rivzani is a wonderful person. We couldn't wish for a better collaborator than her and MD Anderson. So um, it's an exciting time ahead of us. Next, we take a look at Azaferos, which is a clinical stage company founded in 2018. Its aim is to build a pipeline of disease-modifying therapeutics to offer patients and their families new treatment options. The company's lead clinical stage program is AZ3102, with the potential to treat GM1 gangliosidosis and GM2 gangliosidosis, and Neiman-Pick disease type C. To tell us more is the Azaferos CEO, Stefano Portolano. Yes, so... Zafaros is a company with uh, activities in the Netherlands and Switzerland. The majority of the team is actually in Switzerland. It was founded in 2018, and this came from uh, decades-old research uh, done at the University of Amsterdam and University of Leiden by Professor Hans uh, Arts. And it's relevant because our lead asset, AZ3102, actually comes from this decade-old uh, uh, research, and therefore we benefit from a number of attempts and all the professor arts uh, learned uh, over the years uh, around uh, this type of assets. 
And um, it is a small molecule. Uh, it is intended to treat lysosomal storage disorders, which are metabolic diseases. And uh, it works by inhibiting uh, two specific enzymes, which are key in these diseases. And so and has an excellent brain penetration, uh, highly potent, and has this unique dual mechanism of action. Like I said, this has been engineered and planned. It's not like it didn't happen just by chance. And, and therefore, we believe we are in a really unique position by having this particular asset in our hands. Could you tell me a little bit about the conditions that it's treating? Because they seem quite rare. Yes, uh, they are rare. We are focusing initially on uh, GM1 and GM2 gangliosidosis and uh, Neiman Pick type C disease. Reason why we're focusing on these is because there's a lot that has happened for lysosomal storage disorders since the early days with serodase and serozyme. But unfortunately, almost the entirety of the drugs addressing these diseases are really address only the systemic manifestations that are unable to really impact the neurological manifestations, which are very, very relevant in GM1 and GM2 gangliosidosis and Neiman Pick type C disease. And like I said, given the characteristics and the features, of AC3102, we think that the product can actually make a meaningful difference in these patients. Like I said, they are actually rare. We estimate there are about a thousand patients with GM1, GM2 gangosidosis in Europe and the US, and about a couple of thousand patients for Nympic type C disease, again, between Europe and the US. Obviously, we expect that there probably there's a quite a, a large un, well, you know, undiagnosis of these diseases. And uh, like we've learned uh, over the years with rare diseases, once you start having more attention, more focus, and hopefully sooner treatment, then more patients get diagnosed uh, and sooner. It's still, I think, years, years after some of these diseases have been uh, worked on, you still see that there's an issue with awareness and really understanding. Again, when you have such a rare disease, and I'm a physician by training, and so I know how difficult it can be and when you may see one patient in your own lifetime to actually do a proper diagnosis. So the fact that they're rare has obviously some challenges in terms of uh, clinical trial enrollment, obviously from a commercial perspective. However, I think it's also important that you do address this type of diseases. and also has some advantages in terms of uh, maybe dealing with the regulatory authorities. Sometimes there's some uh, flexibility on their side in in allowing different uh, regulatory routes. You mentioned being a physician and, and the fact that this is rare. Is it something that's easy to diagnose or does it often go misdiagnosed or not diagnosed? Yeah, it does often get uh, undiagnosed, unfortunately. Most of these diseases, they get either you get the wrong diagnosis or Typically, what I've seen when you actually ask patients how they did get their diagnosis, you have literally years of going from one specialist to the other and, you know, trying maybe the one diagnosis after the other and then doing diagnostic tests after diagnostic tests. Some of these symptoms are relatively not specific. Like, so in GM1 and GM2, for example, you have ataxia, which is a, a gait abnormality, which is unfortunately common to many other neurological diseases. You have uh, epileptic attacks, which are, of course, common to many other diseases. So the syndrome constellation of all the, of the symptoms, once you recognize this, once you do have diagnosis, then it's quite clear. But when you go to a doctor and you say, hey, my kid has has seen, has had seizures, or my kid has an abnormality in, in, in gait, then you start the path of, okay, let's see if it's this or if it's that. And being rare, obviously, it's not on top of mind of physician. And they always, you know, always think rightfully in a way to the more common diseases. Being a physician, I remember like when I was uh, studying medicine, and then when I started seeing some patients, oh, I almost thought like, you know, no patient is actually my textbooks. So they are very different from whatever I found in the textbooks. And so that's that's the challenge. With rare diseases, that challenge is like exponentially harder for physicians. So it's it's nothing on physician side. It's really the fact that um, it's hard to find like, one symptom that can really make you suspect the one particular rare disease. And Neiman Pixi, which I haven't mentioned, also is a neurological disease. It has some of the symptoms are similar to GM1, GM2, but some are different. And for example, one key symptom of pneumopic uh, type C disease is uh, difficulty in swallowing, which 
per se, you can already imagine this is a very critical symptom for quality of life. However, this has also, unfortunately, a big impact on uh, survival because uh, it can cause, uh, when it becomes more and more serious, it can cause aspiration pneumonia, and, which is, in fact, uh, uh, often a cause of death uh, in these patients. So it is a symptom that we hope we can ameliorate or at least slow down the progression with AZ3102. Does it affect um, children and adults alike, or is it more likely in one than the other? Yeah, very good question. So there are actually different forms of the disease. And then I, here, I can say similarly for Neumann PIC-C and GM1 and GM2 gangliosidosis. So there's an early infantile form, so that which happens and gets diagnosed in uh, first year of age or symptoms start in the first year of age. And unfortunately for these children, deterioration is very fast and it's really hard to make an impact there. And we believe that the reason why the enzyme missing in this particular case is, is completely missing. It's not even, there's no residual activity of the enzyme. And therefore, this drives to a much, much more serious uh, form of the disease. And then there's a juvenile form where you have symptoms starting sometime after two years of age and all the way into the teens, uh, 12, 13, 14 years of age, where you have a relatively broader spectrum of severity of disease, but still, in all cases, you have, you know, unfortunately, shortened survival and quite a rapid uh, progression. And then there are some adult forms where you have really late onset of the symptoms, and you can then carry the disease into adulthood. In the case of Neumann pic C, it becomes almost a psychiatric disease. And then uh, also in the, in the GM2, which is also known as a Tysacs and Sandoff diseases. You can also have like adult uh, forms. So it's uh, you know it can affect all ages. It's it is more frequent in in the pediatric uh, ages. All right. Are there any current treatments? So there are no current treatments for GM1 and GM2 gangliosidosis. For Neumann pick type C disease, there is one uh, treatment. It's a Migrostat. It is approved in several jurisdictions in Europe, uh, in, in Japan, in Australia, and Canada is not approved in the U.S. for uh, Neumann pick type C disease. The product is quite used, uh, however, has a number of uh, difficulties in actually using the product. It has some serious side effects, GI side effects, and depending on the uh, data sets, up to 40% of patients actually have to stop the drug because of side effects. So even if there is one drug uh, available, we believe that EZ3102 can be really an important one in treating this, uh, this disease. And like I said, in, U- in the U.S., it's not even approved, and there's only some off-label use. And your own drug that you're working on with this, what's the mechanism for it working? It inhibits uh, two key enzymes. So first of all, that's one of the of its unique characteristics. Uh, it is uh, able to inhibit two enzymes. There are some other drugs, uh, either in development or on the market, which can inhibit one or the other, but none that actually can inhibit both. The two enzymes in one case actually reduces the production of the uh, substrate that accumulates in the disease and that causes all the different uh, symptoms. And so by reducing the synthesis, you can actually normalize the metabolism or, or almost normalize the metabolism. The other enzyme is actually a different enzyme and it's uh, located in a different part of the cell. And uh, our working hypothesis is that the um, inhibiting of this enzyme actually reduces uh, the production of certain substrates such as sphingomyelin or S1P, which are toxic. And the two mechanisms together by reducing the synthesis of the substrate, which is what I call it more the mechanistic approach, the other inhibiting the synthesis of some toxic substrate that's more almost a regulatory approach, regulation approach, the two together should really bring a important uh, neuroprotection of these patients. Importantly, both these mechanisms of action which are combined in AZ3102 are assets, they've been used in other drugs. So there are drugs approved and marketed with either inhibiting of GCS, which is the substrate reduction, or the GBA2, which is the regulation pathway. And so, again, our working hypothesis is that by combining these two already validated mechanisms of action, we could actually exert a better efficacy on the disease control. Is this something that's designed to or potentially can just slow down the disease or is it something that you're looking to being able to eradicate it? Yes. Again, that's the, the million dollar question. Mm. So 
In neurological diseases, I think that if you can stop the progression, that's already a great, great achievement. And of course, it depends how further down the disease is and how deteriorated these patients are. So I think at some point, if we can show efficacy, then I think it would be very important to realize how early you should start these patients. And my, you know, if it works, the earlier, the better, right? When I'm really optimistic, I think we may see some improvement in some patients, maybe that if you, again, treat early enough, our goal is to slow the duration of stop or stabilize the disease. And again, if you start early enough where the disease is not deteriorated, then you can actually stabilize at a very early stage and possibly even at a, a, a near healthy state. So there are these two um, aspects. One is how early you start, and the other one is can you actually stop the progression of the disease? If I look at the potency of the inhibition by the asset, uh, we should be able to actually exert a quite a good uh, clinical effect. Uh, but you know, until you start treating patients, it's really hard to predict. Where are you at with studies on this and trials? We have completed a phase one study in the healthy volunteers uh, where we saw that the product is safe and well tolerated. And also we confirmed uh, target engagement, including in the central nervous system uh, by looking at uh, cerebrospinal fluid. So we know that the product gets to the brain. We know it actually does what it's supposed to do in healthy subjects. And we are about, uh, in these very weeks, we are about to start a phase two study where we're going to treat GM2 gangliosidosis patients and C patients. And we're going to look at safety and uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic. The goal of the study is really to assess what's the those that we should then use in registrational studies, which are going to be larger and, of course, are going to look at clinical efficacy. The study will start in any a week now. Uh, we get all uh, regulatory approvals, both in Brazil and in the U.S., and so we're now getting ready with the last uh, IRB approvals to actually get started uh, and treat patients. And we should have data in the second half of this year, allowing us then to start uh, registrational studies sometime in 2024. And we're already in, in uh, contact and we have already engaged and, and received the initial feedback from regulatory authorities also on the registrational studies to make sure we know what would be needed to actually get marketing authorization for AZ3102 in these diseases. The fact that this is so rare, how difficult is it to get trials together? It's going to be a challenge. We have looked uh, a lot about what other companies are doing trials and what enrollment rate they could achieve. So we are trying to stay grounded and not uh, overpromise. I think in the end, it boils down to do a, a quite a large study in terms of number of clinical sites, which is good because that way you can you know, reach many patients in many countries. Unlike studies with the larger indications where you wouldn't have a site where you enroll one or two patients. Here, you have to accept that you may have a site where you enroll only one or two patients. And so that's what we're now carefully looking at, which countries, which sites we should include in the registrational studies to make sure we have a relatively short and fast enrollment period, and therefore we get the data as soon as possible for regulatory submissions. So we're looking at a global study. We're going to definitely involve Europe, U.S., uh, Latin America, where there's uh, unfortunately a lot of patients in Latin America, and, and there are like excellent uh, clinical study sites to perform studies. And we may go also to other areas of the globe. That's what we're doing right now, making sure we, we look at the right places and the right sites to run the studies. Are there any other indications that you're working on? Not at the moment, but uh, that is one of the key features of our lead asset, AZ3102, and that is that if the drug works, it should be able to work in a number of diseases, not just the ones that we're targeting, because the inhibition of the enzymes is actually upstream to a number of the enzymes that are effective in different diseases. So it could work in a number of other lysosomal storage diseases. I'm thinking, for example, in Gaucher disease, and in particular, Gaucher disease type 3, which is the neurological form of Gaucher disease. It could work in Fabry disease, uh, which is a relatively larger indication in rare diseases, where there are already other treatments available. So I think we've been a small startup and, and we are trying to really focus on where the biggest unmet need is and where we think we can have a biggest impact. But there is no reason to think that the drug should not be also effective in other diseases. That's a key aspect of the value proposition of AZ3102. And now we're talking about groundbreaking science to expand the amino acid alphabet. 
What can you do with all of those extra amino acids? Well, to tell us is Dan Mandel, CEO and co-founder of Grow Biosciences. Hi, Dan. First, can you tell us a little bit about the company? Yeah, sure. So Grow Biosciences is really trying to redefine the way that we make protein therapeutics. And we do that by granting access to an expanded universe of amino acid building blocks. So for the last three and a half billion years, life has made all of the proteins that we see on Earth from the same 20 amino acids. And about 12 years ago, I came out to Boston to work with George Church at Harvard Medical School. And the lab was just finishing these new organisms, which can go beyond those 20 amino acids. We call these genomically recoded organisms or GROWS, which is the acronym for our company. And what we've done is reprogram these cells in such a way that they can now have an expanded genetic code. We can put completely new amino acids into proteins that nature has never explored. And this grants us the opportunity to create entirely new therapeutic modalities. Kind of going off track a little bit here, but does that resonate with the general public as being kind of like creating new species and that, that kind of thing? I mean, is there a kind of a publicity aspect to this insofar as you've got to really explain what you're doing and that you're not playing God? It's funny you should ask that, Jim, because when I got to George's lab, the first project that we did to prove that we could engineer proteins with these new amino acids was actually around safety and increasing the safety of these new organisms. The reason why, and this is stepping a little bit away from therapeutics, but it is relevant for producing therapeutics, is that these organisms have, as I said, a modified genetic code. And that means that it's difficult for viruses to infect them. Viruses depend on your cells to make their proteins for them. And so if the instructions for making those proteins are effectively changed, then you can't make the right proteins for the virus and the virus can't replicate. And so the first recoded organism that we created has uh, resistance to many naturally occurring bacterial viruses called phages. And in fact, upcoming organisms will be almost impossible to be uh, efficiently infected and replicate bacterial viruses. And so this was, you know, potentially a concern. You know, I think in reality, there aren't any instances of laboratory engineer production organisms wreaking havoc in nature, but it doesn't mean it's not something we should get ahead of. And so we went out and built the seatbelts before the car, so to speak, wherein we utilized these non-standard amino acids as an essential food source, if you will, or metabolite in these organisms. And the way we did that was to sort of take my background in computational protein design. This is where we use computers to Uh, redesign proteins with these building blocks and combine that with the background of this organism that lets us put in the new amino acids. And essentially the idea was to take all of the essential enzymes in this bacteria and then find enzymes where we could redesign them to require a non-standard amino acid to function properly. So this is kind of like taking a Jenga puzzle, right? And pulling out and adding blocks in such a way that if you don't have this special amino acid, the whole Jenga puzzle falls apart. And that is exactly what we were able to do. We took multiple essential enzymes, made them dependent upon this new amino acid. And in so doing, if that organism were to escape from the laboratory, those amino acids wouldn't be available. Those essential enzymes wouldn't function and the organisms can't survive. And so we actually drew a lot of comparisons at the time to Jurassic Park, right? Because they tried to... uh, biocontain the dinosaurs by making them dependent on lysine, one of the amino acids, which of course doesn't work because lysine is an amino acid that can be found everywhere in nature. But our amino acid can only be synthesized in a laboratory. And so truly these these organisms were fully biocontained. So that really gave us confidence that we can now rationally engineer proteins whose folding and function actually depends on this new amino acid alphabet. And that was when we turned our attention to, to the question of what are some problems in medicine that simply cannot be solved using the standard 20 amino acids where we have to go beyond what's available in nature? And that was really the genesis of Grow Biosciences. I'm glad I asked. It was a good, good, great answer there. As far as rare diseases are concerned, obviously we're trying to make that a little bit of the focus of today just because it's a podcast that's going out about rare disease day. But what are some of the challenges when it comes to developing treatments for rare diseases? Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenges is that 
many times a rare disease arises from a very specific problem or deficiency. So it could be the result of a single gene um, that's gone awry or a single enzyme. And so in practice, what we'd love to do is have a very targeted approach to treating patients, but that's proven difficult. And so for many diseases, including rare diseases, we have to take approaches that are sort of what we'd call nonspecific. And that means they cause a lot of side effects in patients. And they also may not be all that efficacious. And I think one area where you see a lot of this is in autoimmune disease. Right now, for many autoimmune diseases, many of which themselves are rare diseases, you have to treat the disease by broadly suppressing the patient's immune function. And that's because in an autoimmune disease, the patient's body has decided that some part of themselves, a protein or a cell, is actually foreign and it mounts an immune attack against the patient's own cells and proteins. And so to basically treat the patient, we turn down the entire immune system. And that does help in terms of decreasing that attack on the self, but it also represses the patient's ability to fight infections. It can increase the risk of cancer. It can lead to metabolic dysfunction. And in, in general, so far, most of our treatments for those types of rare diseases have been very nasty and oftentimes not so effective. They might ameliorate symptoms, but they're not truly disease modifying. And so what we, and I think many other companies are interested in, is what's referred to as antigen-specific approaches, the antigen being the specific protein that you're reacting to. And acrobiosciences, the way we do that, coming back to this capability of using new amino acids, we now have new amino acids that bear a very special chemistry that can directly interact with the immune system. And it turns out that one of the key ways that your body distinguishes self from non-self is by these sugar molecules called glycans. Most of the cells and, and proteins in your body have a glycan composition, which is recognized by your immune system as being self. And you and I, Jim, share the same glycan language, but we're different than a cat or corn or an orangutan or a cow and also then bacteria, right? And so when your body sees a particular immune signature or glycan signature, it can decide, okay, this is self. But if it sees a bacterial sugar signature, it mounts an attack, right? So it's one of the key languages that's used to discriminate self from non-self. So we now have amino acids that can actually carry those signatures. This is something that has been really difficult to do through natural what's called natural glycosylation or natural cell-based systems. But with these new amino acids that we've engineered, we can precisely control the glycans that will decorate a particular protein. And that means now we can access this capability of antigen-specific tolerization that I alluded to a moment ago, which is really a holy grail problem uh, in immune tolerance. Is awareness of rare disease is an issue? I mean, is it something that I mean, every, everybody knows cancer and we're starting to know more about antimicrobial resistance? Are rare diseases a struggle to get people to take more notice of? Absolutely. And, you know, it begins with diagnosis. I think all of us have people close to us who have gone through a period of successive misdiagnoses, wherein, you know, their symptoms are perhaps not looked at carefully or they're not interpreted the right way, or even the right questions aren't asked. And oftentimes, this is just the difference between getting in front of the right doctor. But because, again, these diseases are rare, it's not often where people begin. And so there's a massive problem of underdiagnosis and misdiagnosis. That also does trickle down into therapeutics, because that eliminates people from possible studies, right? So these are very small disease populations. There are only so many patients you can study at a time. And so that actually could also be the difference between having enough patients to enroll in multiple trials versus having one trial that's running and actually can impede the development of other clinical trials that are trying to bring other uh, life-saving therapies to these patients. So, you know, I think first and foremost, the identification and the diagnosis of the patients is obviously critical because there's hopefully something we can do to ameliorate their symptoms, but it does trickle down into, into drug development as well. Could you tell me a bit about the ProGly platform and how that works? So if we take the example of, of a rare autoimmune disease, you know, we are working on uh, multiple rare diseases right now as a company. One of them is an autoimmune disease where we know which protein 
the patient's immune system is reacting to. And so if we can quote unquote tolerize, which means to turn off the reactivity to that one protein, we can cure that disease for most of those patients. And therefore we're doing it in what we call an antigen specific fashion, where the rest of the immune system is now left intact. And that's really important because as I said earlier, most of the frontline therapies for refractory patients are broadly immunosuppressive. And that is really making the patients, you're trading kind of one sickness for another. And so with Progly, we can take that antigen that the patient's reacting to, and now we're going to produce it in our grow platform, decorated with these Progly amino acids. And these are carrying that tolerizing sugar signature on the surface. Uh, what happens then is when you put that protein back into the patients, and this is a protein therapy, those sugar molecules are going to activate a tolerogenic pathway in those patients. The ultimate goal of that pathway for the sort of more scientifically uh, immunologically based uh, listeners on the call is the induction of what are called T-regulatory cells. And by activating those T-regulatory cells, they can actually go off and turn down the, the specific response to that antigen. And those T-regulatory cells are quite long-lived. And so this is an approach where we can take a particular immune response and then turn it down in a persistent way without having to suppress the rest of the immune system. So that's one way we can apply the technology to treat autoimmune disease, right? We tolerize the patient specifically to the antigen that they're reacting to. They're actually a, a complementary way that we can treat patients in areas beyond autoimmune disease that are also rare diseases. And in fact, within our company, we have other pipelines underway as well. For example, enzyme replacement therapy patients. At the top of the call, we talked about how some rare diseases arise from a single faulty gene or a single faulty enzyme. And oftentimes, the best treatment for that is to give that enzyme to the patient. You know, you don't have enough of an enzyme and we'll just give you it. The problem is oftentimes the sources of those enzymes are non-human. And therefore, again, you end up with a immune reaction to that enzyme. Now, that may or may not make the patient stick at first, but what it will often do is make the enzyme less effective. What the body does is it generates antibodies against that enzyme. And so over time, it becomes less effective. The antibodies will block the efficacy of the enzyme because the immune system believes this is a foreign protein and we need to block and clear it. And so those patients become sicker, right? Because now that this enzyme that was temporarily relieving their disease isn't working anymore. And if you think about it, it's very similar to what we're trying to do with autoimmune disease. We're going to take that same enzyme, express it in our platform, decorated with those tolerogenic glycans. And now you have a tolerogenic version of that enzyme replacement therapy, which does not generate a neutralizing immune response. And so for a chronic disease where you want to take this enzyme for as long as you need, you can now take that enzyme indefinitely. And this is a way to resolve, I think, a key problem in many enzyme replacement therapies. And then the third area where we're now pushing this technology is also very relevant for rare disease, which is gene therapy. And in gene therapy, you'll typically deliver a corrected copy of a gene to a patient who has a faulty copy of that gene. That's the cause of their disease. And the most popular way to deliver that corrected DNA right now is by viruses. And so these are non-pathogenic viruses. You know, the viruses themselves are quote unquote safe, and they're really just being used to deliver that correct copy of the gene to the patient. The problem is because they're viruses, your body mounts a immune attack against them. And so they become inefficacious. And to make matters even worse, depending on which of the viruses you're trying to use, because these exist in the environment, there is a reasonable chance, Jim, that you and I have already been exposed to them and that therefore we will not be able to use the therapy. And 30 to 70% of patients have already been exposed to these different viruses, depending on which one we're trying to use. And if you've been exposed and you have antibodies against that virus, you're not eligible to be reimbursed by insurance for the therapy. And we're talking about, you know, million dollar therapies here. And so this places these therapies outside the reach of many patients who desperately need them. So if you think about what I just said, it's actually two problems in one. One is for many patients, we can't give the therapy at all because they've already been exposed to the virus and they already have neutralizing antibodies. The second problem is that once we've given them one treatment, 
well, now they've definitely seen the virus and now they can't be redosed, right? So think about the Johnson and Johnson COVID vaccine. Why do you only get one of those, but you get two Moderna and two Pfizer's and maybe now you've had four? It's because it uses that same virus. And once you've seen it, you can't really redose it effectively. So these are two really big problems. And at least I think to my mind and many people in the field, this is the key impediment to expanding gene therapy to more patients that need it. So how do we solve this problem? We, we're, we're taking the same approach that we're talked about for enzyme replacement therapy and for autoimmune, which is to tolerize the patient to the gene delivery vector. And as it turns out, we can make those viral proteins in our platform. And so that lets us make uh, versions of them, again, that are decorated with those tolerogenic glycans. Now, we're not making the ultimate version of the virus that's delivering the gene therapy. We're making an empty delivery vector, which we're just going to use to show the immune system what it looks like, right? We're going to prime the immune system to accept the gene therapy vector and also to stop acting to any pre-exposure to that virus. And so this is really what you might think of as a tolerogenic vaccine. I know vaccines are something that will stimulate some kind of immune response, and you can drive towards an inflammatory response like you do with a COVID vaccine, but you can also drive towards a tolerogenic response, which is what we're doing here by trying to induce these T-regulatory cells, two different pathways. And by doing that, we should be able to eliminate those pre-existing antibodies and also prevent the emergence of antibodies that prevent redosing. Redosing is going to be really important because many of these gene therapies show waning expression over time. And so if you're going to start giving gene therapies to children, for example, even if it's five to 10 years later, they may need to be redosed. And we think that this is a potentially very safe and efficacious way of tolerizing patients to the therapy, again, without having to broadly suppress their immune system and bring a huge number of new patients into the potential to use therapies, which are currently excluded. Seems like a, does that mean that you would be able to redose or that there would be no need to redose? We think that we'll need both. So we'll need to both eliminate the pre-existing antibodies so that you can get the first dose, but we also don't want to prevent redosing. For some indications, redosing may not be necessary because you maintain high expression, but there are so many more diseases that can be cured by gene therapy that will require redosing. And so we want to solve both problems. And the good news is we think that this mechanism will facilitate both. And what kind of um, diseases will this be relevant to? If we're talking about gene therapy, we've been using it for a lot of areas. The, the first therapies that are going to be emerging are in hemophilia. And so we already know that some of the first therapies in hemophilia show that waning expression that I mentioned. And so those patients will have to be redosed. But other areas like the spinal muscular dystrophy, also we have life-saving gene therapies there, still need to see what that looks like over time because it's still been relatively new. But we're, we want to be pushing into whole different areas, you know, spine, muscle, liver, brain, all these different tissues. And many of them will have different um, accessibilities and efficiencies to this approach. And therefore, we're going to want to make sure that we can redose. And of course, we want to make sure that we bring all of the patients who need these therapies into the purview of this approach. And as far as what you're doing at your company, where, where do you go from here, I guess? Yeah. So our company, at this point, we've generated, I think, some very promising results in animals. And so we're, we're continuing to build out these so-called preclinical data packages. Some of our programs uh, we're developing internally. Others we look to develop in partnerships. And so we're pushing on all those fronts in parallel. And then as we complete these preclinical data packages, then we'll start moving these different pipelines into the clinic. And that's, you know, when we'll really get a handle on how successful we're looking. So I guess to watch this space then. Definitely. There's a lot of exciting data is going to be coming out in the next uh, year or two, not just from our group, but from many who have I think kind of spearheaded a lot of the approaches that we're trying to make better, right? And again, so we're not we're not a gene therapy company. We're trying to make gene therapy work better and make it work for everyone. And so anytime you see a success in gene therapy, that's a huge win for patients. We're here to try to make it possible for everyone who needs them to get them and for then those therapies to maintain efficacy over time. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we hadn't? I would just say that the future looks very bright, particularly 
in these areas of gaining more specific and direct access to dysfunction. As we're focused on antigen-specific tolerization, there's a lot of progress happening here. So I think if you have a rare autoimmune disease, you should feel heartened that the progress we're seeing in our friends and peers makes me optimistic that in the coming years, we're going to see approaches that allow you to get off of these broadly immunosuppressive therapies that make you sick in other ways and onto therapies that are going to be much more targeted with much few, many fewer side effects. And I would say the same thing for gene therapy. We're going to have some you know, really fantastic life-saving cures coming out in the next two years. And hopefully with companies like ours and others, we'll be able to help the fight as well by making more patients eligible and, and making the therapies more persistent. So I would end on that optimistic note. And that's it for this week's podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Still a few interviews already done waiting to be on the podcast, but that's a good thing to not have to think about. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining us, and I hope wherever in the world you may be that you have a great week ahead. Take care and join us next week for another Beyond Biotech. Beyond Biotech.